0: Hello, I'm your host, Erin Gruwell, and welcome to the Freedom Writers Podcast. Today's show is episode number 29, featuring conversations with two survivors of the Rwandan genocide. These courageous souls describe what it was like for them as teenagers in 1994 to grow up in Africa and witness this atrocity. They also discuss how they are learning to heal in the aftermath. I hope their harrowing and heroic stories leave you feeling enlightened and empowered to make a difference. The Freedom Riders often said that they felt like they were living in an undeclared war. Dodging bullets in the streets and running from rival gangs were tragically a part of their everyday lives. Because of these horrific realities, my students connected with stories about other young people in actual war zones. They were especially inspired by the writings of Anne Frank about the Holocaust and Slata Filipovic about the Bosnian genocide. Like Anne and Slata, my students chose to pick up a pin instead of succumbing to the violence around them. They learned to overcome their adversities through storytelling and to become catalysts for change. This episode unveils the horrors of the Rwandan genocide through the eyes of our two guests, Edith and Issa, who, like Anne, Zlata, and the Freedom Riders, were teenagers when war and violence changed their lives forever. Edith and Issa explain the racism and discrimination that was rampant in Rwanda in the years prior to the genocide, which began in April of 1994. They expound on how the mass extermination was gruesomely carried out, often at the hands of a machete. And most importantly, We explore how bearing witness and sharing their stories helped Edith and Issa cope with the pain of loss. Across countries and continents, they continue to work towards rebuilding themselves, their families, and their country. Whether you're a teacher, a parent, a student, or simply a concerned citizen, I hope these stories about the past awaken you to the urgency of addressing racism and discrimination in the present. On the eve of the 25th Memorial of the Rwandan Genocide, you'll hear Edith and Issa's stirring call to action. May we educate and may we act to end intolerance of any kind and create a more caring and compassionate society. Since its inception 25 years ago, the Freedom and I have been honored to study and learn from the powerful testimonies documented by the USC Shoah Foundation. I recently had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Stephen Smith, Executive Director of the Shoah Foundation, who has expanded the scope of their work to capture stories and testimonies from other genocides around the world. One of those stories comes from today's featured guest, Edith, a testimony indexer at the Shoah Foundation and a survivor of the Rwandan genocide. When I first met Edith, I knew that we had to interview her for our podcast, and I'm honored to be back on USC's campus to do so. Edith Umuji was born in Rwanda in 1975. Throughout her childhood, she witnessed debilitating discrimination against her family and other members of the Tutsi tribe. She distinctly remembers the seeds of genocide being planted and recounts for us in vivid detail what it was like seeing people slaughtered right in front of her and running for her life. The United Nations estimates that between 800,000 and 1 million men, women, and children were massacred during the hundred days of the genocide, a rate of death four times greater than at the height of the Holocaust. After the genocide, Edith often asked herself, why did I survive? There has to be a purpose, a purpose indeed. Without further ado, here's Edith. It is an honor to be in the USC Shoah Foundation with our esteemed guest. She is an activist and fighting a good fight to give voice to those who do not have a voice. She hails from Rwanda and on the eve of the 25th commemoration of the horrific genocide, she is going to take us backwards so that we as listeners can go forward. Welcome to the show, Edith. Thank you very
1: much. My name is Edith Omujiraneza. I was born and raised in Rwanda, but I left right after the genocide in August, 1994.
0: What I'd love to do in honor of listeners who may not have been exposed to this part of history yet, I'd like to paint a picture for them of your country, putting some historical context around it. I know that your country at one point was unfortunately colonized by Belgium, And so can you talk about what it's like to grow up post-colonization? Yes. They are the ones who divided the
1: Rwandans into three tribes, Tutsi, Hutus, and Tua. When I was in elementary school, we were asked to tell in which class or tribe we belonged to.
0: And so I understand that the class or tribe that they wanted you to identify with was, was Tutsi?
1: Yes. It was all about the discrimination. So, like, um, Tutsis were not allowed to go in public high schools or get good jobs. They were limited. It was all about discrimination and uh, division. The school I went to, uh, at my elementary school, the principal was a Tutsi, and most of the teachers were Tutsis. They had to fill out those papers, you know, because it was a requirement from the government that made me not really go through any kind of discrimination or... No, I didn't face that until the 1990s, when the invasion started. 1990, I was in high school in uh, Kibuye. When Fred Yemma was a kid, that's the time where we started being really... I was aware of persecution. Detention started in friends and students, classmates and teachers in school. Students who were Hutus, they were saying that they would come, you know, and kill us. So we couldn't sleep nighttime. We lived with fear. We went through that until 1992, and I went home for Christmas vacation. When I got home, I told my mom that I'm not, not going back to that school because I was afraid to be killed.
0: The tensions were really bad. Can you describe to our listeners that with this new government, with the Hutu-controlled government, what were they saying on the airwaves of the radio? What were they saying on television that young folks like yourself heard?
1: Yeah, or they were preaching about racism and telling people, the population, Rwandan population, that Tutsis are the enemies. You know, they don't have to trust them. They use the media for propaganda to tell people to not trust them, to kid them, to be aware, to pay attention, to be careful with them. And they have to get rid of them. It was terrifying. Since the 1990s, they had roadblocks. And I remember going to school because it was, my school was far away from home. We had to stop on each roadblock and show our ideas. I was afraid of being killed. Hutus were described by people who were short and with a wide nose. And the Tutsis were tall and have a thin nose and that's what they were looking for.
0: One of the most disturbing things that our Holocaust survivor friends talked about was how they were dehumanized as rats and as vermin. And I understand that the Hutu government called Tutsis cockroaches. cockroaches yeah. cockro- mm-hmm. So you're a teenage girl, mm-hmm. a beautiful woman, and you're hearing the word cockroach. What does that do to your self-esteem as a teenager, as a human being?
1: It was really hard because people lost trust in their friends, and they, they, some of them didn't know what to do and how to deal with that. I remember, as an example, one day I went to visit a friend of mine, and on my way back home I saw people, Mauritius, and they were training themselves. They had machetes, they were wearing their uniforms, and it was really scary. And the way they were acting, I was afraid. So I had to go back to my friend's house until late in the night. So my brother came and get me. He came later in the night. He got me from my friend's house and took me back home.
0: Did you have a premonition that this militia would actually use those machetes at some point? When you're watching it as a practice or a drill, what was your feeling about what was to come? Yeah, you know, people were going to be killed, and we had
1: stories from school. I had stories from my friends, my classmates who were Tutsis, that their families were being killed already. And there are some people who were friends who died. They were killed, either they were shot with guns or with machetes. And that was way before April, 1994.
0: Wow. So we are on the verge of a 25th anniversary. When are you aware of the actual genocide beginning? Can you take us back to what happened in April of 1994?
1: I remember it started, April 6th was on Wednesday, and they were home. That weekend, we celebrated Easter. We had a family gathering. All family members were there. We had good food. And then on April 6, I heard from the radio that the president got killed. His friend got shut down. And um, I was like rejoicing, thinking that it was the end of the suffering. I went to see my mom who was sitting down in the living room. I told her about what I heard from the radio and she didn't believe me. She said, are you losing your mind? It's not possible. And then she got a phone call from someone else who told her about what happened. We thought maybe people who are involved in politics will be killed and you are not involved in politics. So I thought we'd be safe, but it wasn't the case. When I saw my mother's reactions, I was like, oh, we want to travel. That night, she told us to sleep in the hallway. The following day, the situation was really getting really bad. They told people to stay where they were, but that was a strategy, to find them where they were and kill them. So my mother told us to leave and to go hide in a different places because it was a rainy season. So that's what we did. We had to leave home.
0: We left. And when you
1: say we, who who
0: left the home and went into hiding?
1: My two brothers, my sister-in-law, her kids, and two other nieces, myself, we went to different places. My mother was telling us that in the 70s, they went to hide in churches, and they were safe. Kiras didn't go there, and she thought it would be the same way, which was not. She sent me to that church, but God, they uh, People were being killed, so we left. We decided to go to my grandma's house. I went to my grandma's house, and the, my sister and her with the young kids. They went to my other sister's house.
0: Most of the people were were killed in Rwanda at the hands of a machete. It's it's personal. It's bloody. It's it's direct. What is that like? The first time you saw a machete strike an innocent person.
1: Um. When I was hiding in banana plantation, there are other people who were hiding not far from where we were hiding. A group of killers they came, they took them, murdered them not far from where we were and we could see that, but we couldn't talk. We were afraid that they would find us and get us. We were in thinking about food or drinks. That was not our concern. And uh, I know it was raining really hard. We didn't care about the rain. Even if we weren't afraid of animals, snakes, where the animals were afraid of people.
0: So any person could be a perpetrator? Yes. From the plantation, where did you go next? I left the plantation because they
1: killed my uncles, who lived not far from there, and my grandma. And they destroyed the houses there. And they had that they knew we were hiding in that plantation. Someone came and told us and took us to my sister's house in the nighttime. We went to my sister's house. We stayed there a couple of days. But we saw them coming there too. And they took uh, my nephew, my sister-in-law, and they went and killed them. During those three months of the genocide, I didn't have, and I think I'm not the only one, we didn't have any emotion or feelings. We just numb. I didn't cry during the three months of the genocide. I never, never cried. Even seeing them killing my brother, I never cried. We didn't have time for grieving. We are just waiting on our time to come.
0: I understand there was a moment that you just wanted to stop. You wanted the madness to stop. You were tired of being afraid and numb. Can you paint a picture of that moment and what happened?
1: Yeah, because um, now I was in a different area. I didn't know if my mother, my other brother, or other family members were okay. I thought I was the only one in this world, and my sister was in Canada. And I couldn't see how it's possible to survive. I thought I would die anyway, so I decided to go to a roadblock and be killed because I thought that would be good for me instead of dying each second, each minute, each hour. I went there and they told them that I want to be killed. And they say, sit down there. And they sat down there all day long and they were killing people all day long just in front of me. And at the end of the day, they didn't kill me and I went back to the place where I was living. The following day, I came back. (laughs) The same thing happened, but on that day, there's someone who came to that block who knew me. He was a Tutsi, but he had a Hutu ID, and his physical appearance, you couldn't tell that he was a Tutsi. So he was he was the one who came to me and said, what are you doing here? I said, I want, I'm waiting on them to kill me. I want to die.
0: So I left with him. I can't imagine watching death, waiting for death, and then survival. Do you think you survive for a reason? I don't know.
1: A Couple of years after the genocide, I was asking myself why I wasn't kid, and it was a regret for me to survive. I was thinking about old people, friends, family members, loved ones who got kid. I didn't want to be alive. Because I couldn't see how I'd be able to to deal with the loss, but now I know I survived for a reason. There is a purpose.
0: How did it end? What made the massacre stop?
1: When the RPF took over, like a group of uh, soldiers and army, yeah. And that's when the those killers and uh, the government left the country, and uh, we saw RPF people saving people, and yeah.
0: And at that point, how do you rebuild? What was that journey like?
1: I went back home, and I was expecting to see them coming back because I didn't have news from my mother and some other family members. So I was hoping to to see them coming back, which never happened.
0: In your immediate family, how many of your immediate family members did you lose? Mm, I lost most of them, 80%. 80% of your
1: entire family? Yes, those who survived their young kids who went to hide in a, an orphanage.
0: So returning to an empty, barren home, mm-hmm. what was that like?
1: Oh, my God, it was really bad. I couldn't sleep. I, was, I didn't want to live there. Going in my mother's room or the living room or seeing some of their across there, it was really hard. So that's why I left the country right after the genocide in August.
0: You left shortly thereafter, you said August. How were you able to leave and eventually go to Canada?
1: Uh, during the genocide, my sister who lived in Canada called home because she had what was going on in the country. And she had the record, she recorded the conversation my mother telling her that she had, if any one of us survived by chance, she would have to take care of us. So that's what she did. And I kept telling myself during the genocide, the whole, the three months, that if I survived by chance, I will never live again in Rwanda. So then after the genocide, we called her. She told me to go to Kenya, and we started the immigration process and then from Kenya to Canada.
0: What was it like in Canada to go from a, a war-torn country in Africa to the embrace of the Canadian people?
1: It was really good because I had um, friends, family friends, who are Canadian, who supported us as a lot. And it was, it was good for me, the change, to be in different place, different people, starting a new life. New beginning. New beginning. (laughs) Yeah. When did the feelings come back? When did you start feeling? When I got to Canada, I think maybe because I I had peace and no one was running after me or, you know, hunting me. Yeah, that's when I started having nightmares and uh, crying, depression. Yeah. I don't know how it stopped, but I don't have nightmares anymore. But sadness and crying still. Happens because um, each year in April I cry and uh, get sad. In the morning. Yeah. So, what, what was it like the first time you shared your story? The first time I, sh- I shared my story was in Canada. The person who adopted us, Canadian for me, one of them was a um, psychologist, so she helped me a lot. She's the one who motivated me to talk about. The genocide to talk about my story and what I went through.
0: I think it's serendipity that you are at the USC Shoah Foundation, a place that has purpose that is now your passion. Talk about your work here at the USC Shoah Foundation.
1: Uh, the, my first connection was when uh, they were correct, uh, collecting um, testimonies from Rwanda, uh, from the survivors from the genocide. Yeah, that was my first connection, and I got involved. Since then, I got involved. My work here, I do believe that I give and I receive. Yeah, I give my contribution to education and uh, bringing awareness and prevention, preventing. We don't want these things to happen again. Even if it's still happening, people are killing or you know, using guns even here in America. And I receive at the same time I receive I uh, the work I do when I watch people, other survivors' testimonies. I run from them and it makes me, it gives me strength and courage. I'm like, I can't complain if I compare myself or my testimony to their testimonies. I'm like, no, I can't complain. I have to keep going and uh, give my contribution. They don't want this to happen to anyone else. I don't want any child to be an orphan because of hate, because of racism, because of discrimination. I don't want this to happen to anyone else.
0: Edith, I think it's so courageous that in April you are going back to Rwanda for the commemoration, um, the 25th anniversary. What would that be like for you to be there once again?
1: You know, um, I'm going there because I kept avoiding that, and uh, I told myself that I can't keep doing that. I hope that to help me, to be healed and to accept what happened. I want to be surrounded by survivors, people who went through the same thing and deal with my emotions. Just being there with them, sharing our stories, hugging each other, and going back in that moment, I think it will help me a lot, you know. It's April, it will be raining. It's a sad time. I want to go through that, through those emotions. Because my plans is to go and find out exactly what happened to each one of my family members, especially to my mom. I know how she was killed, kid, but I want to hear from the people who killed her. How will you know who was the perpetrator? It's easy when you know the place where uh, they got killed. Uh, you go to the local leaders and ask them to show you They have names of people who were involved in the killings.
0: So that's how I'm going through the process. I don't know if I would have the strength or the conviction to come face to face with someone who murdered a family member. So what is the most important thing you want to say to somebody who took the life of a loved one? The important thing
1: for me, it's not what I'm going to say. It's hearing from them answering to my questions, what happened exactly? I think it's important not only for me to find out and to know what happened, but it's, I want to leave that to my children and my grandchildren, you know, the future generation, they have to know what happened to their grandparents. Are
0: you writing questions? Yes. You? And what is, what is one of the questions you want to ask? What she said before she got a kid.
1: I know she said please she told them to kill her but to not kill her grandchildren who were with her.
0: And they honored that request? No. No, they killed the grandchildren as yes. well. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. But that must say so much about your mother's character to even in the end to be sacrificial. Has the labeling and the demarcation stopped? Are people now Rwandan? There's no longer A Hutu, a Twa, or a Tutsi? Are they just Rwandan? They're
1: just Rwandan. That's a big step in the process. It's a way of educating and helping people to to live together. But um,
0: I think there is more to do. There is more to do. You came from a country where where people with power did horrific things with that power. And they say absolute power corrupts absolutely. and, And you saw that. So what would you like to say to people with power about the importance of of using their power for good? If they use their power for
1: good, the country will be in peace, you know. The country will be developed. It affects everyone. It affects the government. It affects the whole country, the population, the citizens. It affects everyone.
0: Since you had such a strong mother, Mm -hmm. what would the advice be for parents in times of crisis or in times of peace? Just to be there for their kids
1: love them no matter what, and give the good values, you know. Teach them how to love, how to live in
0: peace with people who are different. What is the best trait that your mother passed on to you that now lives within you? What is the best thing that she gave you?
1: Love, yeah, love. We lived not far from a market, and there were so many homeless people, especially kids, people who were homeless. And every day around lunchtime, they would come home and have lunch with us and give them clothes. And indiscriminately, Tutsis Ch- and Hutus and Tuash. and, yes, and most of them were Hutus. So that's why people in our neighborhood they didn't want to kill her. Everyone was trying to protect her. She, this is our mother. You can't touch her. You can't. She's our mother. She gives us food. But because she moved from where we lived to another place, that's how she got killed.
0: For young people around the globe, what is the advice that you could give to them, whether they're a young person in Syria, Sudan, or anywhere in a, an area that is dangerous, and there are young people who live in fear? Just be and uh,
1: fight for justice, no matter what. Even if you have to be a sacrifice, fight for justice and protect each other. We have to teach, especially through education, but at the same time, act. We have to be educated, but act. We saw the genocide. It was prepared. You know, we saw that, and we know that but nothing was done to prevent or to stop it to happen. Yeah, they knew about it. There are signs. It happened to Rwanda, it's happening in Sudan. You know, there is shootings in Europe, France, Belgium. It can happen anywhere, any anytime. When you see signs, act. Just live in peace and harmony.
0: I'm so grateful to Edith for sharing her story with us. Our hearts go out to her as she returns to Rwanda in April for the commemoration. We admire her courage and conviction and hope that she finds healing as she's surrounded by other survivors in solidarity. Our next guest, Issa Jean-Marie Viani, will also be participating in the 25th anniversary ceremonies. We're honored to share a story with you. I first met Isa through a beloved friend of mine, the late Anne Heman, who sponsored Isa to become a Freedom Writer teacher in 2012. Inspired by methods used by youth villages in Israel for Jewish orphans after the Holocaust, Anne and her husband Seth Marin created the Hoza Shalom Youth Village in Rwanda. The youth village empowers orphans of the genocide to continue their education and rebuild their lives with dignity. Issa is now the Director of Operations at the Youth Village in Rwanda and works every day to uplift and empower vulnerable children. We are so proud to have Issa in our Freedom Writer teacher family. He adds so much to our global network and was the first of many Rwandan educators to become a Freedom Writer teacher. Issa's experiences during the genocide are heart-wrenching and tragic but he's an extraordinary example of endurance and dedication to rebuilding his community and his country. Now, Issa joins us from the youth village in Rwanda via Skype.
2: My name is Issa Sikubuabo Jean-Marie Vianney. Today, I'm a Rwandese like any other Rwandese, but my background, my hardship, it's because I belong to Tutsi ethnicity. Before genocide, I was a teenager. Our family was a good family, was a healthy family. But my father used to tell me that he could not exercise any other profession except being a primary school teacher because of discrimination, because he was Tutsi. But at my age, I couldn't understand what it means. Genocide is not something that just happened at once, as an accident. It's something that was really well prepared. I could see meetings, you know, in groups of people, but I couldn't know exactly what it was about. But the perpetrators knew what they were doing. So by the moment of genocide, it didn't start immediately. They didn't start killing the same day. So we didn't know that it could uh, lead to where we ended. So it took like uh, one week or two weeks, and they were strategic. They gathered us together, but it was a strategy to put us together so that they could kill us at once. They came in many people with the grenade, with the guns, with machete. They started now throwing a grenade in the crowd of people there are, you know, thousand of people who were there, are shooting, using a machete, any kind of weapon that they had. We didn't know where we were going. We didn't know what to do. I was wondering, I could only move when it was night. April, it's a heavy raining season. It was raining that time. So when it was raining, I could feel safe. But emotionally and psychologically, I would say that I wasn't a human being that time. Because I remember that one time, I even decided to go and find people to kill me. To me, dying was like normal. Every place was full of blood, it was full of dead people. So when they said your father was killed, I didn't pay much attention to that because I thought it was normal. After being reached by our PF soldiers, I entered into denial. I started now denying that my family members died. I started feeling that, like, maybe I will meet them somewhere. Maybe by chance they escaped, by chance they were hidden somewhere, maybe, maybe, but my father was killed during genocide. Luckily, I met my mother, but she was seriously, seriously affected. Bad experience of genocide. It took so many years for her to reestablish. So that's when now I became orphan. Really, psychologically, I wasn't me. I had no plan, I had nothing in my mind. Until the time when the government said, you know what, all students who were at the school have to resume studies. The government tried to pay school fees for orphans. So we had that opportunity at least to study without paying school fees. I went there. I started now feeling that I wasn't alone, feeling like a school is a good place to be. I remember that the first vacation, I refused to go back home. I decided to stay at the school, because I could discuss with other students, we could share our, our stories. I started feeling that maybe there is a hope of life. So that's how now life resumed. As a country, it was a long plan, very difficult one, but finally it was a successful plan. I remember that after finishing you know, high school, I got a governmental scholarship, but I decided to not go because that time the fund could afford paying school fees, but on a condition that one is not deployed. But because the rest of my family was counting on me, I said, no, I had to find a job so that my family can survive. So let me go find a job I will be working and studying, paying tuition on my own, feeding my family, and that's what happened. Luckily, I had uh, some jobs um, teaching younger children to the time I started teaching in high school, at the same time studying. And because in my mind, I knew that I will be the voice of the voiceless, I will defend, I will advocate for the most vulnerable. That's why I decided now studying law in college. I was a school teacher in one uh, school. I became a school principal in the same school. That's when I met people from Agazo Shalom Youth Village. I was in a workshop about consequences and trauma management. We start now discussing about traumatic issues in my school and in their school. So the Agar Shalom Youth Village was founded by an American Jewish lady, Anne Heyman, based on youth villages in Israel. She started thinking how if youth villages in Israel helped the country, To address the issues of teenagers after Holocaust. Can this work in Rwanda? So the Adalzo Shalom Youth Village was found to copy that model from Israel to Rwanda to be like a solution to challenges facing youth, orphans of genocide in Rwanda. It's a that model, but we try to contextualize it in Rwanda. So I was excited to see what they were doing. I went to visit, I was impressed, and then I joined as a school teacher. I was teaching general studies. So since January 2010, until today, um, at the Agaozo Shalom Youth Village. But that time, my students used to have different issues concerning their property, their rights, and so on. I used to help them in different ways, but I didn't have appropriate methodology and techniques to really help them to express themselves. So I remember one day, Anne Heyman said to me, are you really interested in deepening your healing skills? I said, yeah, yeah, I am interested. And she introduced me to Ernie Gruer, and she asked me if I could apply to Freedom Right Institute. To me, it's a privilege and a honor to me to be part of the institute, particularly to be a Freedom rights teacher, because not everyone has got that chance to be trained, to be inspired by Freedom Writer Foundation. I have groups of students, they try to write personal stories our students you know they have different traumatic background which is not easy for them to really share as rwandese we have this culture of internalizing we do not say what we have inside us but this strategy of writing their personal stories is a healing process so storytelling is a positive change it's a good message for in international community to learn transformation is different from transaction. Transformation is something that takes longer. So to my fellow teachers, education and healing and transformation, it's something that requires one to be patient, to invest time and to hope. One's story can empower other people. One story can comfort other people. One's story can educate the community. If I remember right after the genocide and the where we are today after 25 years only, it's unbelievable.
0: I want to thank Edith and Issa for generously sharing their stories and helping us understand how to heal and trust after tragedy. I know that many of our listeners have also experienced trauma. And I want to acknowledge that the way our guests share their stories today may have resonated with you. Often when people like Edith and Isa endure inexplicable pain, they become numb or struggle with denial. But as our guests dramatically demonstrated, sharing your story allows you to feel and allows you to heal. Thank you so much for listening to the Freedom Writers Podcast and for sharing it with others. We look forward to staying connected and helping you make a difference. Once again, I'm your host, Aaron Gruwell. This episode was produced and edited by Bryce Serrier and Rob Falk with production assistance by Carolyn Crosby. Until next time, dear listeners, may you write what needs to be written and tell what needs to be told.